1: Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture, and my guest today is John Dickerson, who has written a book on the condition of evangelicalism in our world as we um, deal with the seismic change in culture uh, that is taking place in our midst. And we uh, hope to have John help us sort our way through that. Now he looks pretty young, but he's pretty wise. So, uh, John, it's a real pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Daryl. It's great to be here. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you didn't start out in the pastorate. You started out doing journalism and mainstream journalism. Mm-hmm. And what did you? And and what kind? Of, you were an editor or a writer? Or... Well, actually, I'm. You know, a uh, little bit of each.
2: Uh-huh. Uh, started as a writer, was an editor for a while, and uh, went back to writing. Did a lot of investigative reporting, a lot of uh, – it's called long-form journalism, where mm-hmm. you're doing these eight
1: 10,000-word stories.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, uh, uh, so how does a journalist – Get to the pastorate (laughs) by (laughs) by
2: God's providence. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. So I grew up in a pastor's home, Uh
2: and I kind of knew the the weight of ministry. Uh And as a result, uh, dreamed of just being a tent maker. You know, Uh wouldn't it be great to to get to teach the Bible and use your spiritual gifts, but not have some of those extra burdens? So while I was in seminary uh, working on my MDiv, I was working as a journalist and. And hoped to really just be a lay person who could handle God's word well, uh, but ultimately God just made it clear uh, He was calling me to give my life really the way Christ gave His life, sacrificed Himself for the bride, not in the same way, but to follow Him in that way, to give up my ambitions, my desires, set those aside, and and serve His church. So. That's when I surrendered to be a vocational pastor.
1: And just to show that you weren't just a run of the mill journalist, you uh, did win some uh, journalistic awards. Is that not correct?
2: Yeah, by God's grace, uh, Tom Brokaw, Charles Gibson of ABC News gave me the Livingston Award. That's a, a pretty notable national one, uh, a few others. And mm-hmm. and I always wondered why God mm-hmm. gave those to me. I didn't really feel like I deserved them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a lot of the bigger ones came right as I was leaving journalism to go into the pastorate. And so you wonder sometimes, God, why, why did that happen in my life? And uh, then when I started to uh, really have this desire to make the church aware not that I'm the one source of truth or anything but mm-hmm. to help the church understand how the culture is changing and how we fit in um, then it really all came together okay here's here's why God gave me these journalism credentials so now you're pastor where. Pastor in Arizona, about two hours north of Phoenix. It's called Prescott, Arizona, mm-hmm. up in the mountains. Oh, very nice! And uh, we have a great, great congregation up there, and just
1: trying to love God and love people. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, about evangelicalism in your book. Um, I, I I take it that your journalistic skills really did. Um, Help you in putting together the book, particularly your analysis of culture. Why don't you talk a little bit about about what that involved? The, taking a look at how the culture worked and, and the types of things that you were looking at. Great. So you know, one
2: of the kind of unique things about the sort of journalism I did, especially the the work that that won those national awards, was looking at really big complex issues. For example, um, oversight of all medical physicians in the state of Arizona, Mm -hmm. uh, twenty-some thousand doctors there, Uh, and and just kind of analyzing big systems and seeing how they work. And uh, in that case, figuring out the different medical boards, their different oversights, finding the holes. So that's that's just kind of the way God wired me. Um, And so really after five years of doing that kind of work, I don't know, you almost get, uh, you just kind of get a feel for looking at a big system and and trying to figure it out and finding expert sources, mm-hmm. uh, which is really, I think, what's unique about um, the book. God let me write the Great Evangelical Recession, mm-hmm. is that um, you know I didn't commission any original research. Mm-hmm. I essentially found there's there's more than enough research out there. Mm-hmm. The difficult thing is making sense of it all. The difficult mm-hmm. thing is aggregating it, kind mm-hmm. of wading through it, and uh, and that's sort of the age we live in. You know, aggregation is is so important whether it's Google aggregating search for us or Facebook aggregating our friends. Mm -hmm. There's so much information, uh, but we need programs and humans who can can make sense of it. So... Uh, so I started um, really by reading a lot of the experts um, who have done primary research, whether it's Christian Smith uh, from Notre Dame or uh, George Barna, dozens of others, and really started by uh, spending about half a year just reading about you know, 40 of the leading books uh, at that time two or three years ago
1: to, to just start to get a sense of you know, the big picture. So you are pooling uh, a whole lot of information that is out there. That's
2: correct, and um, exactly, it just hasn't been. The dots hadn't been connected on the
1: particular information that's in this book. Okay, well, let's talk about what you found, Uh, and the way you did it was the the way the book is set up, which is so nice, is that you go through six key things that are happening. Uh, really to churches and to, and to Christianity, uh, currently focus is pretty much North America is that correct that's correct yeah. and even the United States when the data a lot of the data is just United States okay so um, so let's talk about these six areas you highlight six things that are going on and I, I think the most efficient way to do this is to just talk about them one at a time so you talk about inflation but you don't you, you we aren't talking about uh, we aren't talking about what's happening in the monetary or economic uh. system we're talking about something else what's inflation about yeah, we're talking about the
2: actual Size of the evangelical movement and our perception, uh, at least for many of us, the the circles I was raised in, that evangelicals are one third or even one half of the population. Uh, logically, as I was reading all these um, different great primary research works, I, I felt like logically we had to establish a baseline of what percentage of the population are we roughly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a given that it's impossible to know for sure. Mm-hmm. I think any good sociologist would say that. I think Jesus said that when he said, there's wheats and there's tares. <laughs> we, can't, we can't really you know exactly what percentage of the population we are. Uh, but what I found is four separate researchers who used four separate methodologies um, that were all really thorough. This mm-hmm. isn't just a, a phone survey mm-hmm. kind of methodology. And these four researchers – researchers all found that we're about 7%. One one found 8.9, the other three were in the 7% of the U.S. population. So less than 1 in 10
1: Americans uh, who are actually you know, an active evangelical Bible-believing Christian, which means that rather than thinking about ourselves as kind of a significant plurality, we're actually much more of minority than we tend to think. Yeah, unfortunately,
2: mm-hmm. a- and there's a lot of confusion on it because still to this day, if you ask Americans, "Are you a born-again Christian?" we know 30 to 40 percent will say yes. Mm-hmm. But then, if you ask that same group, "Is Allah the same God as Jesus?" half of them will say yes. Mm-hmm. So obviously, um, those people who say, "I'm a born-again," And Christian, but believe Allah is the same God as Jesus. They're they're not quite in our camp right. theologically, and so that's where it gets it gets difficult. And um, I think the best numbers are those researchers come from the researchers who've really spent three or four years figuring it out because it's a complex
1: thing. Okay, well, uh, so uh, what do you think is the significance of the fact that uh, the numbers are smaller than we tend to tend to think? Great. So, you know, I named the book "The Great Evangelical Recession" Mm
2: -hmm. um, to parallel with the Great Financial Recession, Mm -hmm. and a number of there were a number of triggers under the Great Financial Recession, but a lot of economists uh, agreed that. A primary trigger, if not the primary trigger, was the inflation of home values. Mm-hmm. Um, the mortgage market and other factors had inflated home values in a lot of markets far above their actual value. So in a lot of ways, the, the Great Financial Recession was actually just a market correction. Mm-hmm. The market was correcting houses that were selling for $300,000 that are really worth one hundred and twenty dollars mm-hmm. went back down to one hundred and twenty. dollars and when when market's that big correct, there's a whole lot of ripples that go mm-hmm. out as a result. And so we saw the stock market lose half its value. We saw you know millions of Americans lose their retirement and their home equity. Well, in a similar way, culturally, evangelicalism in the United States has acted and behaved and claimed in many circles um, from the early 1980s until recently that we are... Um, a majority in the mm-hmm. country, or at least almost half the country. yeah, one of the largest pluralities around, yes. so so if these numbers are true, and mm-hmm. I say at the beginning of the book, I hope I'm wrong. yeah, <laughs> I hope yeah. I'm wrong about all these findings. I really yeah. do. But if this seven percent, if we're one in ten, if that's true, Well, that's a huge market correction. Mm -hmm. That's going to show in our political influence. Uh, It's going to show in a whole bunch of ways that essentially the culture, I believe, is starting to realize we're not as influential of a group as we've claimed. Mm-hmm. Now we're still obviously a very significant group—one mm-hmm. in ten Americans, almost. That's a lot of people, a lot of resources, but not the same as being almost half the country.
1: Okay, so that's that's inflation. Now, um, switch the metaphors here. We're going to go to bleeding, which is not the most pleasant image in the world. <laughs> um, so, what does bleeding represent? So, bleeding. Obviously, we all know
2: we are the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're told that over and over in the New Testament. Bleeding is the loss of people from the body mm-hmm. um, not the failure to generate new believers that's a different chapter but mm-hmm. the actual loss of people who were born into evangelical households so mm-hmm. um, the the biggest demographic of that group is that the 18 to 29 year olds mm-hmm. and uh, you know David Kinneman's done such great work with you lost me mm-hmm. drew Dyke over at leadership journal mm-hmm. uh, has done some great work with generation X Christian mm-hmm. and um, we know from multiple sources from you know, Barna to Lifeway to even UCLA, mm-hmm. that two and three um, who have been attending an evangelical church will stop attending, and other ones stop believing. There's multiple mm-hmm. surveys on this uh, between the ages of 18 and 29. Mm. Now, the great hope is that a lot of them will come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's not a lot of hard data on mm-hmm. how many do. One of the reasons is you know i just turned 31 mm-hmm. so if if i was the 18 to 29 well how long will it take to know if I was a prodigal if I came back? It might take Mm -hmm. another 30 years. Uh So, you know, people get upset that there's not uh, more hard data on that and we have to understand the constraints of (laughs) of research, you know, that we we don't really know what the 31-year-olds right now will do until 29 years from now. (laughs) So, So, um, But we're definitely seeing anecdotally and from the research that does exist on it that it's not not the majority who are coming back. Mm -hmm. Um, One suggests uh, that it's about a third of those who leave who do come back, mm-hmm. uh, and we get into anecdotal um, and anecdotes here as opposed to objective research because of what I described. But we see that the ones who do come back typically return. Um, not right where they left off, mm-hmm. you know. If they've, for their 20s, been away from the Lord, they've made a whole lot of lifestyle choices during that decade mm-hmm. that typically, you know, set a course for your life. So whether mm-hmm. it's alcoholism or pornography, uh, just other, you know, really... Their their sins that enslave, and so even the ones who do come back, it's not like they come back and right away start leading a home group or right. you know um, discipling other people. They come back kind of wounded, limping in, and hopefully we put our arms around them and restore them.
1: So if I'm getting this right, you're saying uh, out of the group that we're talking about, we have one third that stay, we have two thirds that leave, we might get one third back, but even that is means that one out of every three is it doesn't remain. That's right, um, and so obviously dealing with the age group that is eighteen to twenty nine is important, uh, and uh, I take it that that part of what emerges out of what you're looking at is the idea that we really need to pay careful attention to that age group, the nineteen to twenty nine year old group, which actually translates into paying really good attention to them when they're in their teenage years and mm-hmm. earlier before they get there
0: this episode is brought to you in part by thomas nelson publisher of grieve breathe receive finding a faith strong enough to hold us written and narrated by pastor steve carter grieve breathe receive those three words became a profound mantra for steve carter during a season of deep healing the kind that comes after painful trauma grieve Breathe, Receive, is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more.
2: That's exactly right. And that's, you know, that's that's my heart in this is thinking of the future church. Mm-hmm. Uh, my concern is not that the evangelical movement, if we could call it that. Mm-hmm evangelical Christianity, the Bride of Christ, let's Mm -hmm. just call her that. My concern is not that that the church is going to fall apart in the next year or Mm -hmm. two. Uh, We've got great resources, great momentum. My concern is that there – all of these – Pat, all of these trends uh, come together in a very consistent pattern of gradual decline, uh-huh. and yet, the. Uh, in addition to that, the culture's rapidly changing, and that right. seems to be contributing. It seems like the decline is accelerating in the face of cultural change. So, you know, theologically, I should couch this that, you know um, – In Matthew 16, Jesus is so clear. He will build his church. The Mm -hmm. gates of hell will not prevail. There's certain folks that come across my research and say, well, you you obviously don't trust the sovereignty of God. Uh Well, I do trust the sovereignty of God. I know his church is going to prevail. And yet, I think we have to be careful about claiming the sovereignty of God as an excuse to not be honest about what's going on in the country where God has placed us. So, we know His church is going to prevail, but I think that especially those of us who are leaders in ministry, we have a responsibility to really be aware, yeah, you know, that the church has prevailed since the 1600s in the world. Um, But it has definitely declined in England and in Scotland and in Germany. And if we're now on that track in the United States, what can those of us who God strategically placed in this country, first of all, what do we need to understand and then what does God's Word say about it?
1: Well, we'll come back to, to how to deal with some of these because they're they're important issues related to how this works. And uh, but this particular age group is also a concern mm-hmm. uh, that we have seen in in some of the conversations we have. We're in the process of mapping many um, college campuses across the country and asking what the pressures are on students mm-hmm. who go into college, particularly colleges that aren't Christian colleges. And uh, and then the backside of that is well, how do we prepare mm. students who go into those environments for what they're going to face, both socially and intellectually? And uh, it, it's a, it's an important concern, and it means that youth ministry is a is a very very important and strategic yes. part of the church. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. tend to we tend to view it all to, sometimes perhaps as as just simply people maintenance or mm-hmm. kind of expensive form of of. Entertainment and babysitting, but it actually is a very, very important part of the church program.
2: Absolutely, and you know, American children outside of the church, that as a whole, are are growing up younger and younger, and mm-hmm. they're making their uh, life decisions, life setting their life courses younger and younger. And uh, absolutely, if we wait until college, we're we're way too late. Yeah. And. Uh, th- that's one of the other things where there's not a lot of hard data, but anecdotally it seems that um, a lot of uh, – it's Ken- Kendra Dean from Princeton mm-hmm. who concluded a-, a lot of these um, young people who walk away um, – and this is her conclusion – that, that uh, perhaps many of their families, they didn't really see the power of God, they didn't really see – what it is to be sold out to God, they saw a more nominal Christianity. They saw, um, and obviously this isn't the case with everyone who walks away. Right. There are there are kids who walk away from homes where the the mom and dad are, you know, as we'd say, on fire for uh-huh. the Lord. But um, you know, her conclusion um, from her research was that. Uh, Essentially, they're reflecting what their parents are doing the other six days of the week. They lived in households where Christianity, following Christ, didn't affect everyday choices. It was something that was done on Sunday, and they decided, well, it's not really why why play the game.
1: Right, right. Well, that that's bleeding. That's uh, that's a pretty important category. Uh, The next one sounds equally ominous bankrupt. Uh, so so we're bleeding, we're inflated, and we're bankrupt. So what's bankruptcy about?
2: Well, bankruptcy returns to the financial analogy, and it's mm-hmm. literally about our finances. Mm-hmm. Uh, the evangelical machine, we don't want to call it that, yeah. but the, the, the organizations we have, the way they run, they run on the fuel of dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sounds really you know, evil or greedy. It's not, uh, but it is the way it works in America. If you take an honest look at our our, um, our network, our web of ministries—from mm-hmm. Navigators, Campus Crusade, Focus on the Family to local churches, uh, to our missionaries overseas—there's um, a lot of different components to this big machine, but they all run on one fuel mm-hmm. in the American model, and that mm-hmm. is dollars. And uh, again, there, there's nothing wrong with that, but. Um, you know, I think we could argue that historically, compared to a lot of other churches, and even contemporary churches in China and India, places where the church is, is embattled but thriving, mm-hmm. um, we could argue that we're a lot more dependent on the dollar here. Uh, you know, if, if you could have a dollar to disciples mm-hmm. ratio. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know… I guess the the concern there is if the f- the amount of fuel, the amount of dollars coming in mm-hmm. stays consistent, then the gradual path of decline that we're on could stay consistent. Mm-hmm. But if those dollars were to uh, begin dropping rapidly, then the, the good that we are doing would also decline. Uh, it's very dependent. I mean, right now, most of our ministries, if not enough dollars come in, we have to lay off staff. Right. We have to lay off the people who are doing the heavy lifting of evangelism and discipleship. So I really looked into um, how are we financially uh, for the next 15 years, for the next 30 years? What are the giving trends generationally? Because I had seen, as probably most ministry leaders have seen uh, in anecdotal experience, that uh, the older generation givers are very consistent. Mm -hmm. Uh, The younger generation givers tend to be sporadic, uh, tend to give emotionally. Uh, many don't give at all. Mm-hmm. Many younger generation American Christ, uh, evangelicals are are less consistent, not only in their giving, but even in their attending. Mm-hmm. You know, they're more likely to, to show up to church once or twice a month as opposed to uh, you know three or four times a month for the older generation so I worked really hard to find some hard data on this um, and there's not there mm-hmm. <laughs> not much but I did find this group called uh, black Bob they do nonprofit analytics in the United States and they had some figures and they um, their figures that 46 percent of giving in Christian churches comes from the 65 and older generation mm-hmm. now the next generation down uh, the next oldest generation gives the next 20-some percent. Mm-hmm. So combined, it's 68 percent, almost 70 percent that comes from these oldest two mm-hmm. generations. Now we know the oldest one, which gives almost half, mm-hmm. uh, in the next 15 years, most of them are going to be called home to heaven. Mm-hmm. So that there's this huge transfer of wealth mm-hmm. in America beyond mm-hmm. our circles of you know about $2 trillion a year. Mm-hmm. So the question is, as, the, uh, as their children and then grandchildren inherit this wealth, are evangelical ministries, whether it's a church or a parachurch, mm-hmm. going to see as much as they're used to? Yeah. And are they going to see it as consistently? Uh, I believe based on research um, from Purdue and a number of others that are cited in the book that we're not. That mm-hmm. we're going to see less, but also less consistently, mm-hmm. um, and so as a result, this uh, machinery that we have—that is, you know, our, our cylinders are pumping, uh-huh. a- and uh, we're on this gradual decline because of culture shifts. Well, if the if the fuel does decrease, mm-hmm. um, you know, if half the gifts of from this one generation—that's half—if that's half of our giving in a lot of our ministries, or more for many ministries. Uh, if their kids and grandkids don't radically change their lifestyles, then we need to be prepared in our ministries
1: to, to run on less fuel. Interesting. Well, the fourth one <clears throat> is uh, dividing. Uh, I think this one is we can cover uh, pretty briefly because I think we all inherently get this and that is that the church is uh, is fragmented into different groups and it isn't as united as it as it ought to be or could be is that basically what that's about absolutely yeah
2: that's and, and that's really the result of probably the next one we'll talk about called hated the mm-hmm. the the way the culture's changing um, in its view of Bible-believing Christianity, where once it was, you know, pretty apathetic towards mm-hmm. us, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't in love with us, uh-huh. but it, it was kind of there, – there's those Christians over there. Yeah. Well, that apathy is turning into an antagonism in many circles, an mm-hmm. actual hostility, mm-hmm. um, bills and laws that are being written and passed that actually target evangelical Christians and uh, many of our beliefs. And, and so as a result of this rapid cultural change, we're all trying to figure out how do we respond to this? How do we adapt? And and that's I think where a lot of these divisions are coming from. Uh, some people believe more than ever that we should get out of politics because that hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. While other good people who believe in follow the same Christ from good motives believe more than ever hey the window's closing now's the time to get more involved in politics so that's just one example of these divides and that divide that leads to very different philosophies and ministries and the
1: strategy even if you decide to engage can be decidedly different because some people will say well we need to go in this and take the view that it's a that it is a cultural war and that we're really fighting for uh, some form of survival and then other people are saying well let's uh, be more discriminating. I mean, there is a battle. No one's doubting mm-hmm. that. But but let's be more discriminating about those things that we can come alongside on, and those things where we need to be challenging. And so you've got that division as well, also operating. Absolutely. And then we also see uh, divisions in theology, as
2: mm-hmm. you're much more aware than I am. And I mean, we live in a fragmented culture. Mm-hmm. Again, a lot of these trends are taking place uh, in the fabric. Of the United States, and some of
1: those differences are generational. I mean, if Mm -hmm. if you analyze the way one generation views how to engage with how the uh, younger generation views how to engage, those numbers aren't aren't the same. They aren't the those hearts aren't beating the same way. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, so we've got so we've done five of them basically. We've done inflated. Uh, our numbers are high. Our, our, our exaggerated bleeding. We're losing young people in particular. We're losing people out of the church. Bankrupt. We may not have the resources that we've had in the past given to us. Dividing. We've, we're not as united as we ought to be. Hated. The culture is turning hostile. I do want to come back to that in just a second. The last one is sputtering. What's that one about?
2: yeah, sputtering goes back to this engine analogy um but it has to do with um creating new disciples mm-hmm. um are if you know if we can open up a whole can of worm, you know, what, mm-hmm. what, is, what is Christ's measure for our success? Mm-hmm. One of the most basic ones is the Great Commission, go right. and make disciples. So you know, we've seen that we are losing um, or not making disciples of a lot of kids who grow up within the walls of our churches. Um, sputtering looks at as a share of the population, mm-hmm. you know, about 4 million new U.S. residents every year between births and immigration. Mm-hmm. So if the populations growing by that every year are our churches uh, on a national level, not just one or two mega churches in a community, but are all of our churches combined, are we keeping up with that population growth mm-hmm. uh, and and we are not and the the one of the reasons we're not is that we are not converting adult Americans. Um, obviously, we all know from our ministries we we have some converts, mm-hmm. but we're not converting them at a rate that would keep us. So up evangelism is what it from. used to be. That's right. It's yeah. evangelism. Yeah, it's a failure of evangelism. It's a failure to convert uh, to convert the loss. Yeah,
0: right. Join us next week for part two of the Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary: Teach Truth, Love Well.